sunny day, that always makes things a little bit, uh, a little bit more palatable when the weather is cold. We are in the midst of our Christmas or Advent celebration, and we've been looking, beginning last week, hopefully you caught that on uh, YouTube, if not, I think it's there. But this week we're thinking a little bit about Christmas in the Old Testament as pictured in the kinsman Redeemer. Now we don't think about that very often, uh, but hopefully you'll get a little better appreciation for what that's all about as we work our way through. Let me ask you this question. Did you ever wonder why it was necessary for God to take on human form and to come into this world? I mean, why did Jesus have to come and share in an ordinary human experience and to experience physical death in order to obtain salvation for us? Why didn't God just do something to accomplish all this without ever leaving heaven's throne? I mean, couldn't he just say something or do something that would solve the, the sin problem for us? Why did Jesus have to come? Why not just sweep the whole thing of Adam's sin under the rug and just forget that it ever happened? Why did God have to deal with sin? And why did he have to do it in the way that he did? Well, I think there are several reasons why God determined to provide salvation by coming in human form. And I think uh, one of those is it's a manifestation of his glory. A manifestation of his glory. This business of salvation is no small matter. It is something which the little book of 1 Peter tells us is, is something that's Angels long to look into this, and they long to understand it more. They long to see what God is doing, because angels don't participate in our salvation. They, they don't benefit from what Jesus did on the cross. They, they are just mystified that God would take such incredible pains upon himself to solve the problem of sin. And, and, and that just magnifies the greatness and the glory of God. You know, most people who are somebody today don't concern themselves so much with the little people, do they? They don't concern themselves with the problem of everyday living. They don't worry about themselves and whether or not they're going to have a job or whether or not they're going to have food on the table. And, and they don't, well, maybe they're a little bit like Marie Antoinette during the French Revolution when the people were screaming that they had no bread. What did she say? Well, let them eat cake. Well, if you can't have bread, you're not going to have cake either. The big, important people of the world aren't concerned about the problems of us small folks. But God was concerned. And that was a demonstration of his glory, a magnification of his greatness. That God would be concerned about the fallen condition of mankind. I think it's also a manifestation of his unconditional, or we might say his undeserved, love. We're familiar with John 3.16, aren't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but should have everlasting life. And we get all excited about that. But was there anything about fallen humanity that was lovable? Nothing. Nothing at all. This is God's unmerited, unconditional love. God did not act toward mankind because of something that he saw that was good or lovable or desirable in us. Quite the contrary. Scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing good in any of us that should have merited God's favor. So when God leaves heaven and comes to earth and takes on human form, it's a demonstration of his love for us. Love, excuse me, as I came up with a, a little definition based on the, the life of Christ, love is the, the commitment to make whatever sacrifice is necessary for the well-being of the person loved. The person making the commitment, the person making the sacrifice, really has nothing to gain from it. Certainly that's true of Jesus. I mean, what did he gain from sacrificing himself on the cross? Did that add to his godhood at all? No. Because Jesus was perfect in and of himself. He needed nothing. There was nothing to be added to him. When Jesus took on human form and came into this world and died in our place, it was an expression of his unconditional love for his creation, for you and me. Nothing in us merited that act of favor from God. But he committed himself to do the Father's will, to come into this world and to make whatever sacrifice was for the well-being of us sinners. I think there's another reason. It's a manifestation of his holiness that God would come into this world. He's able to redeem mankind because he himself is untarnished, untouched, unspoiled by our sin. We couldn't fix our own problem because we were the problem. The problem was not external, the problem was internal. And we couldn't solve our own problem. But Jesus, who was untainted by sin because he was holy, was able to come and deal with that problem. He's not a creature. He is, in fact, the creator of the universe. It's also a manifestation of his righteousness. When Adam sinned, when you and I in his footsteps sinned before Almighty God, it's an eternal offense against an eternal being. We, we do things and we say things and we offend Almighty God. And his righteousness demands that his holiness be satisfied because of that injury, because of that offense. And the righteousness of God is poured out and demonstrated on the cross when Jesus, who was absolutely sinless, offered himself in your place 
and in my place on that instrument of judgment and death. It's a demonstration of his righteousness. It's also an identification with those whom he had created. We're created in the image of God, the book of Genesis tells us. We are not little gods, but we share in some of those attributes that our Creator has, intelligence being one. Our intelligence is limited, it is finite. And because of sin, our intelligence has been twisted and warped and distorted. But when God created Adam in his original condition, Adam's intelligence was a small reflection of the infinite, perfect, righteous, holy intelligence of Almighty God. That's why Genesis says that Adam was able to name all the creatures. Because he had intelligence. He had divinely given intelligence. He had a will. God has a will. God makes choices. When God created this universe, he created it as it is, not in some other way. He made a choice. Lots of choices. He determined that birds should fly and fish should swim. It would be kind of interesting the other way around, wouldn't it? <laughs> he made choices. And he gave the ability to make choice to his creatures who were created in his image. Adam made a very bad choice, didn't he? God laid out the, the parameters of the choice, and Adam considered everything, and he made the wrong choice. He made a choice to rebel against his Creator. And we have suffered ever since. So for all of those reasons, God chose to solve the problem of sin to enhance his own glory, to demonstrate his holiness, to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate his unconditional, unmerited love. All of those things are part of why God chose to redeem us in the way that he did. Now I used a word there, redeem, which we don't often use, but one which is very rich in meaning in the Old Testament. It means to deliver from harm, peril, danger, or destruction through the payment of a price. It also means to avenge a wrong, to bring vengeance upon one's enemies. There's the, the idea of redeem, to, to redeem someone, uh, in the Old Testament was a, a privilege of the nearest male Relative. Leviticus chapter 25 talks about the cost of redemption and the process of redemption. If you have a relative in the Old Testament that um, maybe for some reason got into bondage, maybe they did something really dumb, they got themselves into debt, they couldn't pay it, and so they ended up being the, the, uh, the creditor's slave. You, as the nearest relative, if that was true for you, you could redeem your brother or your sister out of bondage. You could pay the redemption price, which would satisfy their debt plus interest, and then they would be set free 
because of your redemption of them. That was the right and the privilege of the oldest and nearest male to the person who was in trouble. There was another aspect of redemption that the, the Redeemer would take care of. Suppose someone, I don't have any brothers, but suppose someone were to murder my brother. As the nearest relative in the Old Testament economy, I had the right to avenge that murderer or that murder and to put that murderer to death. Now there was a process involved, it just wasn't, you know, wild, uncontrolled revenge, but that was the responsibility of that nearest of kin would to be to avenge a death. Now both of those things come into play here in the Old Testament. Or in the New Testament. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of one aspect of redemption in the story of Ruth. Do you like love stories? Christmas is kind of a love story time, isn't it? You know, a lot of folks like to get engaged at Christmas. And then, you know, if you watch the Hallmark Channel or anything like that, there's always, you know, love at Christmas. Well, let me tell you a little love story. You've probably read it before, and it's in the Old Testament book of Ruth. It happened during one of the worst periods of Israel's history. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And Elimelech um, decided that he was going to take his family out of Israel over to Moab. And he was going to live there because, well, there was a famine in the land of Israel. There was a famine in God's land. And so he was going to leave Bethlehem, which means the house of bread, and he was going to go over to Moab, which, well, they were near relatives, sort of, but it was not the land that God had chosen to give to his people. In fact, the people in Moab, they all worshipped other false gods, idols, and so forth. So, Elimelech takes his family, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, and they go live in Moab for a while. Well, eventually... Elimelech dies. And, eventually, the two boys marry Moabite girls. One was named Orpah, the other was named Ruth. But then after about ten years, the two sons die. So now, after a period of time, you have poor Naomi, whose main name means sweetness, and she's living as a widow, and now her two sons are gone, and the two daughters-in-law are there with her, and you've got these three widow women living together in the land of Moab, wondering what in the world's going to happen next. Naomi decides she's going to go back home to Israel. I don't know whether she agreed with her husband or not in leaving Israel to start with, but in any case, she decides she's going back home because that's the only place that there's hope for her. Orpah decides that she's going to stay in Moab. Ruth decides that she's going to go with her mother-in-law. And what a tremendous testimony of faith is given there. Both girls start out with her mother-in-law, but then she says to them, you know, go back, I don't have any more sons in my womb, and even if I did, you wouldn't wait till they were fully grown. 
Go on back, get married, you know, live in your land with your families. Orpah does. But Ruth says, where you go, I'll go, and your God's going to be my God, and where you die, I'll die. And what a tremendous testimony of faith. And so they get back into Bethlehem, and they get there just a little bit before barley harvest, or right about the beginning of barley harvest. And uh, Naomi takes up residence somewhere. I don't know if she returned to the original house or not, but she and Ruth were living there. And she sends Ruth out into the field, and she goes to the field by a man named Boaz. And it turns out that Boaz is their closest kinsman. Well, almost the closest. There was another guy who was a little bit closer in relation. But as you remember the story, Ruth demonstrates her faithfulness to Naomi. She demonstrates her loyalty to Boaz. She she works hard. She does the best she can do. She has a sterling reputation. Boaz checks this gal out, and he finds that, you know, she really, even though she's a Moabite, she's a, a woman of quality, and, and, and she's married to the son of Naomi and Elimelech, and that means I'm a near relative, and maybe I can redeem her. Maybe I can get myself a wonderful wife. And as the story unfolds, that's exactly what happens. Boaz pays the price. Now, technically, first and foremost, it was Naomi that he redeemed. But then he also got Ruth in the bargain. And amazingly enough, as he took Naomi into his home, as he took Ruth as his wife, God blessed them and they had a son, and his name was Obed. And he had a son later on whose name was Jesse, and he had a son later on whose name was David, who became king of Israel. All because Boaz redeemed a lost situation. Ruth had no claim. Naomi had a claim because she was a blood relative. But Ruth had no claim. And yet Ruth benefited from all that Boaz had done to redeem their situation. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2 for a minute. Hebrews chapter 2. God is the ultimate Redeemer. We have the little picture, the little story of redemption there in the book of Ruth. That's just an illustration. That gets us thinking what this kinsman redeemer is able to do, the blessing that that kinsman redeemer is able to be toward those who were lost and hopeless and in distress and had no other, no other options. In the book of Isaiah, you stay there in Hebrews, but in the book of Isaiah, we see the concept of Redeemer repeated many, many times. Thirteen times in all, in chapters 41 through 63, God is called the Redeemer of Israel. Listen to this in Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first 
and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You have a little picture there of the Father. He's pictured as the King of Israel and his Redeemer. That's Jesus, the Lord of hosts. And he says, I am God. Besides me, there is no other. God is the Redeemer. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is the one who took on human form and came into this world to redeem the lost. Galatians chapter 4, 4 and 5 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy back, to pay that redemption price so that those who were lost in sin, so that those who were separated from God, so that those who were absolutely without hope might have hope. So look at chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 14. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's you and me, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same. He took on human flesh. He became a human being. Now, isn't that amazing? You know, a lot of the religions of the world are trying to, to teach that people can become gods. You know, you, you're absorbed into the Brahmin or into the One or whatever it is. Christianity is the only faith in the world that says God has become a human being while still being God so that he might be able to rescue, to save fallen human beings. All the other religions of the world have human beings trying to claw their way up somehow to be good enough through works or meditations or whatever trying to become God. And it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. But in Christianity, we see Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, condescending to take on human form, to come to this world, to explain who God is to us, to live in front of us so that we can see God at work, and then to do something which we could never do for ourselves, and that is to satisfy the just judgment of Almighty God against sin so that we who believe that Jesus did that in our place can be forgiven and set free. We don't have to be afraid of being judged by Almighty God any longer. We don't have to be afraid of condemnation. We don't have to be afraid of death. Let's keep reading. He himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Death in the scripture is portrayed as an enemy and it is portrayed as being separated from Almighty God.
Death does not mean that you or I cease to exist. That's not death. We will always exist, you and I. Ten billion years from now, we won't be here, but you will still exist somewhere. Either in God's presence, because of your faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior, or you will exist separated from God forever in what Scripture calls the lake of fire, suffering eternal penalty because of your rejection of the Redeemer, of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The question is not, am I going to exist? You will. Forever. The question is where? Where will you exist? That's the problem that Jesus came to solve for us. By coming and dying in our place and satisfying God's penalty against our rebellion, He has opened the way whereby you and I can live forever with God. We don't need to be afraid of death. When, when this body, this shell, this encasement of dust collapses and quits working and my soul uh, is set free from this body, I don't have to worry about being cast away from God's presence. I have the resurrection to look forward to, a brand new body that will serve me well for eternity, and to be with the Lord Jesus Christ where He is. Remember John 14? He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And since I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So I don't have to worry. Death, though the process is not something I look forward to, I'm not raising my hand to experience it now, but it doesn't have to hold a terror for me. Or for you, if you know Christ as your Savior. Because Jesus Christ has solved the problem of our sin. And Satan, who has the power of death, I mean, you know, he's the prince of this world. He certainly loves to wreak death and havoc and destruction in this world. Even his greatest weapon, his greatest threat, I'm going to kill you, his greatest threat has been rendered powerless because of Jesus Christ. He came to this world. He took on human flesh. He became one of us so that he could experience death, the separation of the soul from the body. He experienced that on the cross. And he experienced resurrection when God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, brought Jesus Christ to new life on that earliest moment of that third day, Easter Sunday. When Jesus received that brand new body, that very same body that he said later on, you know, look here, Thomas, put, put, your, put your finger in, in the holes in my hand. Put, put your hand in the hole in my side here. You know, the, the a recognizable, physical, tangible body, but one suited for eternity. 
That's what you and I have to look forward to in our humanity. We're never going to become gods, but we are going to become perfect in our humanity, in our resurrection bodies when we stand before Him. What a great, great event that will be. Keep reading. Verse 15, release those who through the fear of the death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels. No angels are getting saved, okay? <laughs> no angels are being uh, benefited by the gospel. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Now, why does it say to the seed of Abraham? Because Abraham is the father of faith. He's the example. He's sort of the, the primary illustration of what it means to live by faith. You can read about that in Romans chapter 4. You can read about it in Genesis. As Abraham becomes the one who hears God's voice and responds accordingly. And God credited, credits it to him as righteousness. Abraham was looking forward to what God was going to do someday in solving the problem of sin. He believed it. He didn't understand all the details, but he believed what God told him. And when you and I believe what God tells us in his word, when we understand that Jesus is the Savior of the world and we put our faith and our trust in him and not in ourselves to get us into heaven, then we too are like children of Abraham, children of the man of faith, we become sons of God, daughters of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he, that's Jesus, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was made like his brethren, so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. When Jesus walked this earth, he lived a life that was absolutely sinless. He was tempted in all points as we are, Hebrews says, and yet without sin. You ever faced temptation? You ever faced uh, that strong urge, that strong desire to do, think, or say what you know is wrong, and yet it looks so attractive, and you want to pursue that, you want to follow that, you want to do your own thing, you don't want to listen to what God has to say, you just want to run your own <coughs> life. Jesus has been tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. And that makes him sensitive to our struggles. Do you ever look at somebody's life and they kind of look like they never had a day of struggle or hardship in their lives? Is that the person that you would want to talk to about a real serious problem in your life? <laughs> Probably not. Because you would think, well, how in the world would they know? How would they sympathize? How could they understand what I'm going through? But if there was somebody in your circle of friends that maybe had gone through some of those same circumstances and, and, and had, had come out on the other end and they were fine and they were doing well, that's the person you'd want to talk to, isn't it? Because 
you know, they're kind of, they can connect with you. They're not going to put you down and make you feel stupid because you're struggling with this thing. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. He, he struggled. He was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. So he understands our struggles and our problems, and he is able to give help to us in time of need. That's why Jesus came into this world as a baby in human flesh so that he could effect our salvation. Not just for the future way, you know, in the sweet by and by, but right now, where we can have real help and real hope from a real Savior because he's lived a real human life. He's our kinsman, redeemer. He's our kinsman. He's a human being. And he's our redeemer. The one, it says, who made propitiation. That's a fancy word. Use that in, in uh, your conversation this week. What does it mean, propitiation? It means a full and satisfactory payment. A full and satisfactory payment. So that when a propitiation is made, there is no further debt at all. It's gone. It's done. Forever finished. Beloved Jesus Christ paid for our sin. It is a propitiation. It is a full, complete, satisfactory payment for sin. There is now nothing between you and your Savior if you know Christ as your Savior. But if you don't, beloved, this morning is the time to make that choice. You will never get to heaven any other way than by confessing your own sin to the Lord Jesus and asking Him to forgive you. That's the reason He came to this earth. He is our kinsman redeemer. He came to buy us back to God. If you try to get there on your own, you'll never make it. You'll be sadly, sadly disappointed. So today, confess your need for salvation. Come to Jesus Christ as your kinsman redeemer. Let him do for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. To forgive you of your sin. And you will have the gift of eternal life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this picture of redemption there in the Old Testament. What a, what a beautiful picture of love that Boaz demonstrated toward both Naomi and Ruth, who had no other hope. They had no other possibility of, of redemption at all. But Boaz stepped in. Lord Jesus, we have no other possibility of redemption at all. But you stepped in. Not just for a blessing in this life, but a blessing for all eternity. Where our sin is forgiven and our home forever with you is assured. Father, we pray that we would think about these things this Christmas season, what Jesus has done. And that, Lord, if there are any here today that don't know Christ as their Savior, 
they won't leave this place without turning to Him for redemption. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.